Well, it's an honor to be with you again, and thank you for watching this video or listening to the audio as the case may be. And I uh, always enjoy these times together, and I hope that they're a blessing to you as you get ready to teach your class or to try to keep up with your Sunday school class, as the case may be. And it's always good to uh, look into the Word of God and let it feed our souls, renew our minds, and energize us because it is uh, alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, and so we never waste our time when we are in the Scripture. We're looking again at the miracles of Jesus. Today we're going to talk about Jesus when he gives sight to a blind man. And so uh, when we think about uh, Christ and we think about these miracles and just the impact that they made, we have to think again, and I know we, we kind of maybe belabor this point a little bit, but we have a hard time in our modern society understanding what life was like for people in the times of Jesus. And uh, just stop and think how different your life would be without things like uh, indoor plumbing and uh, running water, clean water, we can even say that, and uh, think about what it would be like when you didn't have um, air conditioning and heating as we do in our homes. Uh, think about what that would be like, how it would change your life if you um, had no refrigeration. Obviously, you could heat liquids, uh, but you couldn't cool them down. And, you know, there are those times when just nothing really satisfies you like a good cool drink of water or something like that. Think about uh, how often they must have had just um, food poisoning, for example, or something maybe not quite as severe as that, just because um, how were they supposed to preserve their food? How were they supposed to keep it good? And how do you know when it's going bad? There were just things they didn't understand about bacteria and those type of things. Have you ever thought about what it must be like to live in a time when um, you don't even have a Tylenol for a headache? And uh, when, when we talk about things about, you know, like healthy eating and clean eating and some of those type of things, we even watch our calories so that we don't, um, you know, gain too much weight. And we try to exercise so that we can keep some of that down. We, we battle diabetes and those types of things. Can you imagine what it must have been like back in the days when Jesus lived and these people lived when it really was not about staying fit. It was about staying alive. It really wasn't about any of the things we talk about. Am I eating too much processed food or am I eating too much meat or any of those kind of things, too many carbohydrates. It was simply, am I eating? And this is the way people had to live, just something that is terribly hard for us to relate to. Now also, because of their lack of medical science, when it came to various diseases and problems that they had, what were they supposed to think about what might be the underlying cause of it? And if you, um, you know, consider that somebody might die of, of maybe uh, pancreatic cancer, but they would have no idea 
what that was, why it happened or what was going to happen or how to diagnose it or anything like that. Just somebody got sick and they died. And uh, they might come up with the reason for it and determine that it was because of some type of sin or something like that. And that's what we find in the setting here as we get ready to uh, look at this particular story in John chapter 9. Now, as Jesus comes along, I want you to think about something. This is the Lord God, fully God, fully man. We don't ever want to forget that here on earth. And as he is ministering and serving and healing and helping and teaching, he is the most compassionate human being that has ever existed because he has the compassion of God toward his fallen creatures. But let me ask you a question. What good is compassion when you don't have any power? I mean, it may be nice. And, um, you know, you may be in a situation where somebody goes, oh, I feel so sorry for you, but they can't do anything for you. They can't give you any advice. They can't give you any help. They can't do anything at all. Uh, Think about how it must feel to be a doctor with a patient and come to the point where you tell your patient, I I just can't do anything else for you. I feel really bad about it, but I can't do anything else for you. Call hospice or whatever and uh, just wait until you die. That's That's a pretty terrible situation. On the other hand, think about what it must be like if you are thinking about Jesus being God, the most powerful being in the universe. John chapter 1 tells us that the universe was created by the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine being able to say, let there be light and there's no choice but to have light because it's the command of God. And he did that before he ever created any, uh, the sun or the moon or the stars or anything like that. You say, how, did, how in the world did that happen? Well, it was supernatural. And when the boss says, let there be light, light is going to appear. That is power. That is power. To think that he created, and also, according to the book of Colossians, he is the one that holds the galaxies together. And that's why they don't spin out of control and all of that. And uh, have that kind of power. Galaxies that, you know, we haven't even discovered yet. Think of all the ones we have seen through our telescopes like the Hubble and others. And then think about what else is out there that we have not yet discovered or seen. And yet the Lord spoke them into existence and he is the one who holds them together by his power. Okay. What have he had that kind of power, but just didn't care? Just didn't care. It didn't matter to him. And so here's a situation to where maybe your doctor has the cure and has the treatment, but he doesn't feel like, uh, you know, he's on vacation. He doesn't feel like being interrupted. He doesn't want to be bothered. And so he doesn't bother to tell you what you need in order to be cured or your child or something like that. And so what we find out is, as we think about those two things, having compassion without power, well, it's nice. We we don't ever want to discount that, but it's useless at the same time. But what about having power without compassion? 
And there's a word for that. It would be just brutality. That would be an awful thing. Well, here we find Jesus when he's walking in uh, ancient Israel, when they are under Roman domination, they're little more than peasants for the most part. There's some exceptions to that, but most of them are in pretty dire straits. As we have said before, back then it was a matter of if you don't work, you won't eat, not you might not, you, you won't. That's the way most people live. And uh, so Jesus comes along and no wonder he attracted so much attention. This was a man who was popular. He had a large following, crowds would follow him and uh, he was one who cared. But even more than just caring, he could do something. He touched lepers, and instead of getting contaminated, the leper got clean. That had never happened before. When 5,000 men plus women and children are hungry, what does he do? He takes five loaves and two fishes, divides it up, blesses it, gives thanks for it, tells his disciples to pass it out, and everybody eats until they are filled, right? When demons manifest themselves, he speaks the word and they're gone. I mean, this is amazing stuff in a land and in a time when people felt very, very, very powerless, right? So this is Jesus. And this is what got the attention. And this is what caused them to think so much about him and be so interested in him. And this also became a great threat to the powers that be. And so, um, you know, there came a, a point where the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, well, he didn't want any uh, of this going on around there because he couldn't have any insurrections or anything like that. So if this guy gets too popular and uh, tries to assert himself as the king of the uh, Israelis of the Palestine area, well, then Rome is going to come in and... Uh, they're going to try to squelch the rebellion and Pilate loses all of his benefits being the, uh, what is the word, the procurator there. And uh, the same thing is true for the puppet king, uh, Herod. And uh, Herod, after the death of Herod the Great, he inherited part of his father's kingdom, not the whole thing. But uh, here he is under the same compulsion. He's a puppet king from Rome and he serves at Caesar's pleasure. And if things get out of hand, then, you know, he loses everything and his family loses everything. And think about what the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, well, the Sadducees were kind of the liberals of the day. They only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament. They didn't accept the others, the prophets or anything else as authoritative. And they didn't believe in uh, Satan or demons. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in a resurrection or anything like that at all. And so for them, it was grab all you can in this life. They would have loved the title of Joel Osteen's book, Your Best Life Now, because that's what they lived by. Get everything you can. And they were kind of in alliance with Rome. And uh, a lot of the Jews really resented the Pharisees because the, because the Pharisees kind of had cushy government-related positions because they were in bed with Rome. 
Now, the Pharisees, on the other hand, they were the ones that believed that the Messiah would never come back as long as there was uh, Gentile uh, footprints on the Holy Land. And so uh, they are concerned about Israel being defiled and contaminated. And so they were the ones considered to be the holy ones, very zealous for the law, like Paul says he was before he was saved. And so uh, they are uh, zealots for all of this. And so when Jesus tells them that your righteousness is like a filthy tomb, well, that was disgusting and insulting to them. And they were going to lose their power if Jesus kept on preaching and teaching and working miracles. So rather than repent, they chose to fight. And so uh, this is the context of what is going on. There's this ongoing conflict on all of these areas. So Rome is watching him and um, the uh, Pharisees hate him and are threatened by him. And the Sadducees uh, feel like that everything they have worked to gain during this time is going to uh, be done away with. And uh, they're going to lose all of that if Messianic and um, King of Israel type fervor uh, comes up in all of this. So here we go. It says in John chapter 9, Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind, get these two words, from birth. He's never seen anything. He didn't contract a disease. Nothing like that happened. Blind from birth. Now, notice this question, verse 2. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was, and here it is again, born blind? wonder why John's pointing out born blind now twice in these two verses. Verse number 3, Jesus answered, saying, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. In other words, this is about the glory of God. Somebody said that when you think of sickness, there's sickness, um, you know, that sometimes it's just because of physical reasons, that type of thing. Sometimes there's sickness that comes on us because of chastisement. Remember in 1 Corinthians, when uh, Paul corrects him about the Lord's Supper, mistaking the Lord's Supper caused people to be sick. And then there's sickness unto death. But this is a different category, sickness unto the glory of God. Sickness to the glory of God, which a lot of the faith healers and prosperity preachers, they do not have that category in there for sickness at all. But here you find a refutation of that for the works of God. Now in verse 4, Jesus said, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. And that's just simply Jesus saying, I have a limited amount of time. I'm not going to be here on earth in this human body the way that I am right now for a long time. In fact, his earthly ministry was only about three years, wasn't it? Verse 5 says, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent, 
And so he went and washed and came back. Look at this word, seeing. Now, you know, that would have caused a stir. Who could do that? Who made that kind of a of a stir in uh, that area of the world and in that uh, particular place? So verse eight, what happened? Well, therefore, or because of everything we saw before, the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, is not this he who sat and begged? That was his condition before. How is he going to work? How is he going to earn a living? He was nothing but a beggar, dependent upon everyone else. Verse 9, well, some said, there's always these kind of people, this is he. Others said, he is like him. It just looks like it. You're, you're mistaken. He, he's similar. Have you ever noticed how many times we see somebody and we go, hey, man, that looks just like, and we'll say somebody, you know, my Aunt Ruth or something. Well, the truth of the matter is, if you put a side-by-side photo of that person in your Aunt Ruth, there may be some similarities, but you would be able to tell the difference. Most of the time you go, yeah, I guess they didn't look as much as I like each other as I thought, but, you know, something reminded you. Well, that's what they're trying to pull here. You're just mistaken. Now, these are neighbors of this man. They had seen him. They had grown up with him. Maybe they had even helped him. And uh, there's always someone to go, yeah, it just kind of, you know, looks like him. Well, then we have the testimony of the formerly blind man himself. He said, I am he. I'm that guy. Verse 10. Therefore, they said to him, How were your eyes open? Verse 11, he answered and said, A man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received sight. Um, We could go on and I started to, but I think this is a good place for us to stop and have the points of our lesson. Now, number one, will you notice that there is unfair speculation? Don't we do this all the time? Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You uh, find this being a very common thing among the Jews. If there is suffering like this, especially without any kind of an explanation, And their explanations, again, because of their lack of medical science, would have been very limited. And they assumed that if they couldn't explain it, it must be punishment for sin. In fact, uh, down in chapter 9, verse 34, it says, They answered and said to him, You were completely born in sins, and you are teaching us. The idea, if you're blind, then you must be some kind of a bad sinner or this would not have happened to you. And so the idea is that all suffering is punishment for personal sin. And uh, that's kind of like when somebody uh, in the prosperity gospel movement might tell somebody, well, the reason you're not getting well is you just don't have enough faith. You know what they're saying? The Bible says whatever is not of faith is sin. They're saying the same thing these Pharisees and others said. The reason that you are sick is obviously because of your sin. You don't have enough faith. And understand that they also would be saying, think about how this would kind of puff you up. 
that the absence of suffering, I can see, for example, they might say, is because of the absence of sin. My family was holy. My parents were pure. I am pure and righteous in the Lord. That's why I'm not a beggar. That's why I'm not blind. That's why I'm not crippled. That's why I'm not sick. That's why I don't have leprosy. And so you can think about the spiritual pride that that would cause as people would be puffed up looking down on other people. And this is more like Hindu karma. Karma is a very pagan idea. It's not the same as you reap what you sow. It has the idea that you are living the life you have right now because of how you lived in a previous life. It's all based on reincarnation. So if I'm uh, pretty well off and healthy and that kind of thing, I must have been a good whatever I was in a previous life. Now, this idea that sickness and that kind of thing is punishment for personal sin. Now, obviously, it's a result of humanity's sin and the fall of humanity ushered all of that in. But some people look at it as personal sin. You don't have enough and you're getting what you deserve. Okay, what does that do to the idea of compassion? Well, some of these people, especially I would imagine Pharisees, probably looked, uh, walked by this blind man who was begging and somebody said, you think we ought to give him something? No, he's paying for his sin. And that's the same thing that happens in India when you find people that are in the lower caste and people that are very impoverished or very sick. The upper caste think, why should we help them? They are burning off bad karma. If we help them, it's not going to do them any good in their next life. Well, obviously the Jews didn't exactly believe that, but it did kind of put a uh, kind of quash any compassion that they might have for anyone else. They were much more judgmental than they were compassionate. And even the disciples kind of had a little uh, bit of that. It kind of cooled down their charity. Okay, number two, they reached an unreasonable conclusion. Okay, we tried to kind of point out the words from birth, from birth that's in there. Okay, can you think with me how unreasonable it is to make this statement. This man is born blind, blind from the moment of birth. So who sinned, his parents or him? Well, this doesn't really answer the whole thing about the parents and maybe something that they had done, but it does give us a chance to talk about this man. How in the world could he sin and become blind if he was blind from birth. Does the Bible teach prenatal sin? Did this man sin sometime before he was born and therefore he was born blind? God was punishing him? That makes absolutely no sense at all. And then sometimes we might think, well, maybe this is punishment for his parents' sin. Well, let me, uh, and, and you can see this in the notes in your uh, lesson book, and I want you to think about what is happening. The Bible, first of all, does not say anything about sin before birth, does it? Sin comes afterwards, and sin comes with knowledge and with responsibility for our sin. And what about the parent's sin? Doesn't the Bible say that the sins of the fathers will be visited on the third and fourth generation? Now, keep 
in mind that we can be affected by our parents' sins. Children are born, for example, with fetal alcohol syndrome, right? Those type of things. They're affected, but they're not held responsible for the parents' sins, are they? And uh, the way that the disciples asked this question and the way that the Pharisees responded to this man, they were in a sense, can't you hear it? Condemning him and saying that the reason you're like you are is because of you or your parents and you're, um, well, you're just paying for what they have done or what you have done. Well, that again, doesn't make any sense. God holds individuals responsible for their own actions. Ezekiel 18, 20 couldn't be more clear. The soul whose sins will die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Could it be any more clear? Again, being affected by someone else's sin, that happens all the time in, in life with children, with adults, all of those kind of things. But they're not held responsible <coughs> for the sins. So understand that. <clears throat> and then think about the fact that the Bible also talks about that um, the sacrifice of children uh, to Moloch, okay? And he condemns them in the book of Jeremiah for the slaughter, the killing of the innocents, I-N-N-O-C-E-N-T-S, the innocent ones. Why would God call them innocent? Aren't babies born depraved? They sure are. Don't they have a sin nature? They sure do. But they're unable to reason. They're unable to think about things. They're unable to put all of that together. And so uh, the Lord condemns them for murdering those who are innocent. Uh, look at Jeremiah chapter 19, verses 4 through 6. And this is one of the reasons why abortion on demand is so evil and uh, infanticide and abuse, abuse of children is so awful. It says, because the people have forsaken me, and have profaned this place by making offerings in it to other gods whom neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known. And because they have killed, uh, pardon me, filled this place with the blood of innocents, innocent ones, the babies, and have built high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command nor decree, nor did it come into my mind. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when this place shall no more be called Topheth, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. So sin is judged by knowledge and uh, conscience and understanding. James chapter 4, verse 17 says, So whoever knows the right thing to do, get that, knows the right thing to do, and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And even in Romans chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, he talks about people who were non-Jews who didn't have the Ten Commandments, and says, 
For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or excuse them. And also Deuteronomy 139, And as for your little ones, who you said would become a prey, and your children, who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there, and to them I will give it, and they will possess it. And so I don't know, um, you know, people talk about the age of accountability and that type of thing. I don't know so much about that, and there's no age that is taught in the Bible, but I do know there's a difference that God makes between children who don't know right from wrong and can't reason those things out yet, toddlers and that type of thing, as opposed to people who do know. And in uh, the book of Revelation, when the lost are called up before the great white throne, notice that they're judged not according to their depravity. They're judged according to their what? Their works, because their works are sinful. So these people are being completely unreasonable with this man who was born blind, saying that he is responsible for his parents' sins or he is responsible for sins committed before birth. Doesn't make any sense at all. Thirdly, notice that there is an unbelievable miracle. Jesus said, I'm going to do these kind of works while I'm here in the world. And then he spat on the ground, made clay with it, kind of gross. But he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay and said, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And he came back seeing. Now, consider that the blind were in a bad situation in Jesus' day. With myoptic nerve problems, with it dying, I would be in a horrible situation in the day of Jesus. And uh, it's got its problems and limitations now, but I can at least function. And uh, what do you think they would do? Well, they were considered to deserve it. So that would keep, as we talked about before, them from receiving much charity or compassion. And they had no resources. There were no optometrists. There were no glasses or contact lenses, anything like that. And some of you wear glasses and it corrects your vision to 2020. And you don't think anything about it or you wear contacts. But if you didn't have those as a resource, how limited would you be in terms of reading, in terms of work, in terms of driving, uh, all of those things? That's the way people had to live back then. Understand that a lot of the people in the day of Jesus that were called blind didn't necessarily see just blackness. They just couldn't see anything clearly and therefore they couldn't work or do anything like that. And so they might uh, not be totally blind as this man was, but they still would have been in a horrible situation and understand that this was not because of sin or lack of faith, but it is for the glory of God. And making the blind man see corresponds to the statement Jesus made, I am the light. I'm the light of the world. And the light of the world is able to bring light into the darkness 
of a blind man, a man who was born blind, who has never seen anything, and that is giving us a spiritual sign or picture of what the Messiah does for those of us who are spiritually blind, who are walking in darkness, who can't see anything and can't see the things of God. And so it's the gospel. It's a picture of the gospel and the Messiahship of Christ. And then number four, notice that there's an undeniable change and a testimony. And so the neighbors come and they look and they have seen him and they go, who is this? Is this the guy that was blind over here that was begging? And some people say, yeah, that's him. And other people go, oh, no, it just looks like him. But none of them could deny that something had happened. This is a head scratcher. This is something that they can't figure out. This is something that doesn't happen every day. What in the world is going on? And then the man gives his testimony. I am he. And later on, when he's asked questions, he said, I don't really know what happened. I don't really understand all of it. And I don't really, I can't give you a, a full theological description of who Jesus is. But I do know this. I once was blind and now I see. How many songs do you know that use that phrase in it? Uh, they all come from this. A man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And uh, so I went and washed and received sight. Now, the neighbors saw the change. His lifestyle changed. He no longer had to beg. And he answered their question. He answered it honestly. He told them when he didn't know, I don't know. And what he did know, he told them about that. He did not deny Jesus. By this time, it was dangerous to associate with Jesus. But you'll notice he gave glory to God and answered according to what he knew. In John chapter 9, 25, he replied, Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. You know, if we could ever get it in our minds, we're so afraid to witness because somebody might ask me a question I don't know. Just say, I don't know. But talk to them about what you do know and what you have experienced in Christ. 1 Peter 3.15, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. In other words, don't talk about what you don't know. Don't get tangled up in all that kind of stuff. Just simply say, what you do know because they can't refute your testimony. And so we conclude all of this by saying that everything else happened because of what people saw in the man born blind and what they heard. And in verse 35, it says, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir? The formerly blind man asked, tell me so that I may believe in him. Verse 37, Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment, I have come into the world so that the blind may see and those who see will become blind. Now, some Pharisees 
who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? And Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be <clears throat> guilty of sin. But now that you, <clears throat> pardon me, claim that you see, your guilt remains. <clears throat> there you go. <clears throat> pardon me. There you go with those people. They're accountable for what they have seen and what they have heard. And they have seen and heard enough to be accountable before God, accountable for judgment, and yet they want to just deny it and they want to go the other way. And yet this one who was having his fingers pointed at him, this man is born in sin, that's why he's blind. This man's parents sin, that's why he's blind. And now he's the one that is seeing and the self-righteous Pharisees are the, one, the ones who are blind. The old saying is, there's none so blind as those who will not see. And that's where the self-righteous legalists are. And we run across them every day. You might have been like me. That's where I lived for so long in my life. I knew the answers. I knew the church lingo. I knew everything that went on like that. But it wasn't until I was 22 that I actually saw and believed and received the gospel of Jesus Christ. You may have some people like that in your class. Don't fail to talk to them about the cross and about the blood of Jesus that pays for our sins in full, about his resurrection, and that all of us are called to repent and believe the gospel. And it's the Holy Spirit that takes blind sinners and gives them the ability to see and to believe. So I hope that encourages you. And I pray that the Lord will bless you. And thank you so much for taking time to uh, pull this video up and to watch it. And may the Lord bless you and bless you richly.